0: I um, have some encouragement from the Word this morning, too. It comes out of Hebrews 3. Uh, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What does a believer look like? He's believing, and he's persevering in that. And uh, we as a body encourage one another in that. Uh, so we need to walk in that. Uh, encouragement, that exhortation every day. And as we've learned, as we've been studying Scripture about the church and what we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be injecting truth, and that's the Word of God into all of those things. That's love. That's true love. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your grace and your love to us in Christ and all that we have, all the blessings we have in Christ. Uh, Father, pray this morning uh, that our love and our honor and our devotion and our worship to you is out of grateful hearts that understand and remember what Christ has done for us. Uh, Father, uh, as we have observed the Lord's Supper, Father, you remind us what Christ has done. Father, as we um, share in the ordinance of baptism, you remind us and you give us that picture of what Christ has done for us. So Father, I just pray uh, we are a family, a body of Christ this morning that is grateful for what you've done for us, that our worship is in spirit and in truth. Father, we give this time to you in Christ, in his name, Jesus. Amen. For Christ
1: also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. I'm going to have a lot to say about baptism in these next couple weeks between this sermon uh, that's about to unfold here in a few minutes and next week's message. Uh, so I won't say a whole lot about that right now. I want to share with you a little bit about this boy. Stand over here to the side. This is Daniel. This is our youngest. And uh, he's McGraw, if you hadn't figured that out. <laughs> People say that it's kind of obvious, and uh, he's six years old. Daniel's been talking to us for some time now about wanting to be baptized, so that's what he calls it. So we've been—we hadn't really talked a whole lot about it. It's—it's it's something that I want to be very careful about. As some something I expect most of you as parents want to be very careful about that there's a, an engagement of what it is, and what it means, and what it means to believe. So Daniel and I went to Starbucks this week and uh, he had chocolate milk and I had coffee and we sat and talked and um, in talking with Daniel over the course of asking questions and engaging him in his faith, trying to understand where he is, uh, I found these things true about Daniel, what he's engaging. First, that he recognizes that he's a sinner. He recognizes that he's wronged the Holy God and he said, I've wronged God in his ways. And uh, secondly, that there's no hope for him apart from something else happening apart from a a savior stepping in and saving him he recognizes that he's a sinner, that he needs a savior and that that savior is christ and that blood that christ shed is the only thing that can cover his sin he also recognizes that he is um, that part of this engagement that asking christ to be his savior and lord means repentance we use the illustration of you're kicking a ball across the yard and You go around it and start kicking it the other way. You have repented. You've turned completely around and you're moving in opposite direction. So what that means for even a six-year-old is that a six-year-old stops living for himself. And a six-year-old starts living for Christ. And he said that he wants to repent and wants to live for Christ. And um, he wants to make today official the declaration that he is on that journey. So that's what we're going to do here in these next couple minutes as we baptize Daniel. Daniel, a couple questions for you, lad. Look at me. Do you have any hope of being saved apart from Christ alone? No. No? No, sir?
0: No,
1: sir. Are you trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes, sir. All right. Well, Daniel, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for this little dude. What a privilege, Lord. What a sweet, sweet privilege. So thankful for what you've done in this little life in the last six years and so anxious to see what you have in store. Lord, more than anything, we are thankful for what you do in the dark, the dark heart of man, how you open eyes, how you awaken faith, give faith, how you reckon as righteous those who really aren't on our own. I'm thankful for that in the life of this little boy Lord I pray that he will be a walking ambassador, a walking billboard of grace and mercy for the rest of his days in Christ's precious name we pray Amen Last couple of months we've been in a series of messages dealing with the question, what even is church? Seems like a pretty obvious question but it's really not When you consider that Any joker with good credit, a couple of chunks of wood, a nail and a hammer, (coughs) could rent a building and internet access, (coughs) could rent a building, jump online in 15 minutes, get ordained online, take those two pieces of wood and that hammer and that nail, hammer them together in the shape of a cross, slap it on the outside of that building and call it a church. It's a good question that needs to be asked. That may seem like a real extreme scenario, although it's probably not a whole lot different from some things that could happen, that may happen. It's a question worth asking for other reasons, too. It's a question worth asking for a church that's been here, at least in our case, six years, to revisit why are we here, what are we doing, who are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be about? Because every one of us come into this with assumptions, Every one of us, well, I say every one of us, some of you have been saved into this church. Those of you who haven't, I say saved into this church, who have been in this church when you were saved. Those of you who haven't came here with maybe a thought about what church is or what church ought to be. So it's a good question to ask. Sometimes we can part ways based on preferences, not on convictions. And convictions should be what drives us. So it's a question that we've been engaging the last couple of months. We've developed a sentence, a really a definition, and here's where we are in our definition right now. What even is the church? The church is an accountable people. There are two sermons just right there, that we' are people, that we're accountable, who are led and leadable, another sermon, who are taught and teachable another sermon, who are loved and lo- lo- excuse me, loved and loving, four or five sermons. And then today, a baptized people. Let's pray about how we spend the next few minutes. Lord, we want to turn these next few minutes over to you. We just beg for illumination, beg for the work of the Holy Spirit, the unction, uh, to open the eyes of our hearts to see what your design is. We pray that those traditions that we may carry into this Thing this baptism thing that they can be reexamined. We pray that we can still, in some ways, respect our traditions, but just test them against the scriptures, and just ensure that our things we hold dear are things that you hold dear, and in the way done that you hold dear. What I pray in these next few minutes that you open our eyes to what you are doing in baptism and what you have done over the ages in baptism. Lord, also in these next few minutes, I want to pray for another church in our community and another pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Greg and Tracy Fields and for Westminster Presbyterian. Lord, I want to thank you in front of this people. Thank you for the part that Greg Fields has played in the life even of this church. Through time that I've spent with him, through time that others have spent with him, he's been such an amazing friend, an amazing resource. Just a really cherished fellow worshiper. I'm thankful for the part that he played even in the development of this sermon. Or I'm thankful that you use frail instruments to encourage each other to build each other up, to equip each other, to sharpen each other. And Greg has been that for me. I pray, pray for Greg and Tracy's marriage that it's rich. I pray for Greg's ministry to his wife that that's first and foremost, that he not sacrifice his marriage on the altar of ministry. Lord, I pray for his kids that they have a high view of what he's about. Lord, I pray for the church at Westminster that they will be a people that are amazed by grace, blown away, in some ways scandalized by the gospel to the point where they worship out loud between Sundays. Lord, we're thankful for the shared journey. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Summer of 1987, I was between my sophomore year and junior year at a and and I had the, the opportunity to go to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. I jumped out of a plane five times, and uh, I was afraid of heights. I thought that would help. And it really didn't. It just made it worse. Um, I've never jumped into a combat scenario, combat theater, but there are plenty of people who have. In the course of training, in the course of doing this five times, and then plenty of opportunities thinking about it since then, I thought about what parachuting actually is and the drawbacks of parachuting. First of all, you hit the ground disoriented. You're amazed that you haven't broken a bone. That's not like civilian parachutes, for those of you who've jumped with civilian parachutes, where you land running. (laughs) You hit the ground so hard that you're amazed you didn't leave an imprint. You jolted from the impact. And if by some perchance you didn't break any bones, you gather yourself up and try and make sense of the context you just landed in. In our case, at jump school, we're trying to figure out where the trucks are that you're supposed to get on to take you back to camp. But imagine in a combat scenario, when you parachute in, you just got there. You came from a plane to the ground, and you're hitting the ground so hard, you don't even know which way is north. It's not like you have your compass out on the way down. You hit the ground so hard, and you're just trying to figure out what next. The biggest problem with parachuting is that you jump in not knowing what happened before you got there. That's the problem with parachuting. Now, imagine parachuting into this. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Imagine if we were to parachute in not only space into the Jordan River area, but in time, 2,000 years ago, into this context. We would find maybe this actual event where a manly man, the reason I didn't shave today, I love talking about John the B. John the baptizer is calling Israel to repentance, announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And what is he doing? He's baptizing people. While we might sit and watch him for a period of time, we could sit there maybe for hours, maybe days, watch him have some honey and locusts for a little snack break and then baptizing again, watch him do it over and over and over again. The problem is we've just parachuted in. We don't know what happened before that. So it's really impossible for us to really get it. It's like this. I'm going to share an excerpt with you from a book called Deep Exegesis by Peter Lighthart. A priest, a rabbi, a nun, a doctor, and a lawyer all walk into a bar. That's in this book, I promise you. You're about to understand why. A priest, a rabbi, a nun, a doctor, and a lawyer all walk into a bar, and the bartender says, What? Am I in a joke? A few years ago, he says, several of my children asked me to explain this joke from Reader's Digest. It was puzzling to my children. Why? They understood each of the words in the sentence and understood the sentences as sequences of words. Had I asked them to draw me a picture, the artsy ones could have. Some of them caught the frame-breaking humor of a bartender who knows he's in a joke. But the problem is they did not understand why the bartender would draw the conclusion in the first place. They knew all the words, words, they grasped the syntax of the sentence, but they didn't get it. See, the joke depends on a confluence of two joke traditions. Jokes about diverse religious figures and professionals on the one hand, and jokes about barroom conversations on the other. The bartender, clearly well informed about these joke traditions, suspects what's happening, he says, but my children lack the information and miss the point completely. Even at the most literal level, the meaning of the joke depends on all sorts of things that are not there. Things from outside the joke. And there's a problem with parachuting. Is you can jump into the middle of a joke and not get it. You can jump into the middle of an idea like baptism and say, I've seen hundreds of them. I've done hundreds, not hundreds in my case, but you could say that. And you could still maybe not get it. That's the way I felt for the last couple of weeks preparing for this message. It has opened up a whole new thing that I need to dig into. And the thing that I needed to do is the thing that we're going to do this morning. We're going to go back and find out what happened before we hit the ground there at the river Jordan in the wilderness with the manly man baptizing. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in the Old Testament for most of the morning. We're going to grab a couple of passages from the New, but really just so we can understand the Old that add whole new meaning to the New. Genesis chapter 1. I'm beginning verse 9, and let me just remind you, this is the creation context. This chapter, and in more detail in the next chapter, explains creation, how it unfolded. The third chapter is where man fell. But here in chapter 1, verse 9, look at this. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. If you're an underliner, and you're okay with writing your Bible, which I encourage Underlying dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God said it was good. Waters are gathered together. Dry land appears. God calls it earth. And the waters that he gathered together, he called seas. And God said, this is good. Now, make a middle note here. We're looking at this as the creation context. This is the first creation. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 8. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that chapter 6 through 8 ranges the Noah story and the flood account. And you're going to see this again unfold in chapter 8. Let me just tell you, there's Noah's story, the flood account is so much more than a kid's story. It's so much more than a way to decorate the baby's room when the baby's on the way. We did that. There's nothing wrong with that. Didn't we do that? Oh, no, okay, well. (laughs) Maybe it was trains. It was something like that. Cowboys or something. It's so much more than that. Look at chapter 8. I'm beginning just the last verse, just so you know. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Noah and his family, there's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and all their wives. So there's a total of eight, four plus four, eight people on the ark. The waters prevailed for 150 days, and then chapter 8 we pick up. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. That's a sweet phrase. But God remembered. Don't miss that. Oh yeah. I've got my remnant on that ark. I remember them. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of another 150 days, waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Look over in verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Here, crunch, crunch, crackle. Crackle? You ever stepped on really dry ground? You can hear it crunch beneath you? That's how dry this ground was. Just hear it. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, with you. Bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply On the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark, crunch, crunch, crackle, crackle. Now, stay there and just listen to this passage in 1 Peter. It's a passage I read from the baptismal pool. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Man, that's gospel, right? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. It's more than a kid's story. This Peter is thinking back to this flood account. It says while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water baptism which corresponds to this corresponds to this crunch crunch where god's little chunk of people step out on dry ground now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Noah and his family pass through what we're going to call the water ordeal. And they come out the other side on dry land. Here, crunch, crunch, crackle, crackle. And connect the dots from what we read over there in Genesis chapter 1 and realize that this is now a new creation. He's recreated here. He destroyed everything but this little remnant of eight people and two of every kind. And when they step out on dry land, it's a recreation. And Peter thinks, ah, that corresponds to baptism. Noah and seven others and two of every kind are part of a recreation. Recreation. This little remnant of eight people passed through the baptismal waters, hear it, of a worldwide flood to arrive on the other side alive and well. Baptism. This little old thing. I thought it was just a short dip in a cool pool. No, sir. This is much more than that. Baptism corresponds to this, where God chooses and God preserves the people as they pass through the waters of judgment and a new creation is made. Does that add, man, I just want to know, does that add whole new meanings to passages like this? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Man, it drowned. And the new has come. Do you hear crunch, crunch, crackle, crackle? Now, turn to Exodus chapter 14. Let me give you a little bit of context while you're turning there. Where we're picking up in the Exodus story is we're fast forwarding from Noah on through these generations all the way up to Joseph. Joseph's daddy was Israel, Jacob. He's got 11 brothers. You may remember the story, Joseph, through some pretty much bummer events, is actually sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt at the right hand of Pharaoh, and it's all God's design. These bad things happen to Joseph, but what, these guys meant for evil, God meant for good. And you see Joseph, thankfully, in Egypt, where there's food, where his family moves and they survive a famine, and they actually move there into Goshen. And then over the course of 400 years, a nation is born. Unfortunately, they're born under the heavy hand of slavery and affliction. The fiery furnace, as our Bible calls it. The fiery furnace of affliction. We fast forward to a time where God calls Noah to lead this people out of Egypt. And you may remember what happens next. The plagues. These mighty acts of judgment where God shows who's God and who's not. See, they thought thought Pharaoh was. God shows him, no, I'm God. These mighty acts of judgment, the plagues, the final plague being the Passover, where the firstborn of every Egyptian home is taken, whether it's the firstborn little boy in his crib or if the daddy happened to be a firstborn or if their pet was the firstborn of the litter, they all drop dead that night while God delivers his people. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? We had a lot of cool slaves. What in the world were we thinking? Now, those plagues were bad, but he's got a short memory. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and and overtook them and camped by the sea by Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel, the rugged, tough bunch that they are, cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Anybody that thinks Israel was chosen because there's something special about him, just needs to read about them. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses, listen what he says. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Sit back and drink your cocoa. Suck on your pacifiers, Israel. Watch God. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Moses hadn't got the word about that yet when he's saying, hey, God's going to fight this fight. And God says, take your staff and do something that probably never entered your mind and just divide that sea that's right there in front of you with Egypt behind you. Just divide it. That Israel may go through the sea on hear it on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get the glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And he made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. It's the same guy that wrote Genesis, Moses. You think he's thinking about the connections? Oh yeah. Dry ground. It's not the same kind of dry ground that you gave Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth. The same kind of dry ground that you separated and set apart and ordained in the very beginning. The nation of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, crunch, crunch, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and in the morning watched the Lord in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, floating, bloated Egyptian bodies. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What I want you to see here is that Moses and the nation of Israel passed through another water ordeal and come out the other side on dry ground. Here it crunch crackle and yet another new creation is born through a water ordeal a new people god's people are born from the fiery furnace of egypt passing through the waters the baptismal waters that is of the red sea now just stay where you are if you want to turn you can first corinthians 10 just in case you're thinking man I kind of see it, but I'm not sure. It seems like it's a little bit of a stretch to call that baptism. Let's see what Paul calls it. Writing 1,500 years later, 1,500 years after this event, let's see what Paul uses to appeal to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, you Corinthian brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Huh, what's he talking about? And all passed through the sea. Crunch? Crunch? All passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. 1500 years later, this guy named Paul points back to this Exodus event where Israel was what he calls baptized. Right? Thank you. (laughs) Baptized. Man, walking across on dry (laughs) ground. Crackle, crackle, crunch, crunch. And in this case, they're baptized into their covenant head, Moses. And who are we baptized into now? Our covenant head, Christ. You see the beauty of that? You see the beauty unfolding there. They pass through the water ordeal and arrive on the other side alive and well. And Paul calls that the baptism of a people. God chose and preserved the people as they pass through the waters of judgment on dry ground. And they come out a new creation A new humanity. See what's happening before we hit the ground? Lots of stuff happened before we parachuted in. I hope what you're seeing is a developing picture where God's people are delivered while others are judged, ironically, with the very same medium. Water, in this case. We know at the end of the age it's not going to be water, though. It's going to be fire. God's people step out on dry ground while the filth is washed away. God's people step through the water ordeal and come out a new creation. It's like bringing Daniel up from the water as a new creation. If we left him in there, that'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? Police would be here by now and I'd be in jail. But we lifted him up, lifted him up as a new creation. The world and all the treppings have been washed away in baptism. The filth has been washed off. And now here's the irony. Not irony. Here's the... Not irony. Here's something important. If Daniel walks away from God at a future date, if as a young man he thinks, no, I'm captain of my own soul. Invictus. You know that stupid poem? If at a future date, he says, I don't need the people of God. I don't need God. The very waters that he was delivered through will be the waters of judgment for him. The judgment of apostasy, and it won't be pretty. That would be like Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth living like the world did before the flood. How stupid would that be? If you could show up and say, remind him. Don't Did y'all forget what happened to you? Did you forget the cries and the screams of the whole world as they drowned behind the ark? How stupid it would be for them to move back into their old life or to adopt a lifestyle like the rest of the world was living before the flood. It would be like the nation of Israel adopting the ways of the pagan world after they had been delivered from that world on dry, crackling ground. Oh wait, that's exactly what they did. Do you see why others and why your church should be so in your grill? And why I want you in my grill? If I should walk away from the people of God and the ways of God? Where somebody loves you and pulls you back and says, Do you remember your baptism? Do you remember what was washed away? Do you remember God restored you god preserved you through the watery ordeal of baptism he made you a new creation see that's the urgency of indeed being our brother's keeper because we love each other and we love his name and we love what actually happened up here and much more than a short dip in a cool pool Remember the water ordeal, Daniel, that God delivered you from. How the filth was washed away. Don't go get it in it again. It's inappropriate. It doesn't make sense. Now, turn to Joshua chapter 2. I want to show show you the effect of God preserving his people through a watery ordeal. Brad finished the sermon last week with these words, go to Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to go to where Brad finished the sermon and just listen as you're turning to Joshua chapter 2. He finished the sermon with these words from Zechariah chapter 8. It said many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew. Saying, please, let us go with you. For we've heard that God is with you. Man, that effect is what happens when God delivers his people through a watery ordeal. Let me show you. Joshua chapter 2. Listen to this. Beginning in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. This is fast-forwarding through the wilderness event. nation of Israel has crossed dry ground on dry ground yet again through the Jordan. Crackle, crackle, crunch. And now they're about to take their first city, Jericho. But they sent spies ahead. And it says in verse 4, The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True. She's talking to the the guy in charge there in Jericho, the king. He says, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now watch this. Rahab's thinking, I still got those spies upstairs. I'm going to go talk to them. Before the men lay down, she came, hustled upstairs. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why do they melt away? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Y'all, that was 40 years ago. That was 40 years earlier. And that's like a saying in Jericho. Don't mess with Israel. Man, their God is bad. That God will drown you. You go after Israel, you're in trouble. And that's what Rahab's saying right here. She said, man, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. How you guys were baptized. How you survived the watery ordeal when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, as soon as they heard that Israel was coming their way, Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, mm, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Man, that's the effect of God baptizing his people, about God preserving a people through a watery ordeal. That's evangelism. Your God preserved you through that water ordeal. I hear the crackle and crunch underneath your feet. And your God is amazing. He's awesome. The Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Please let us go with you as I grab your robes. Because I've heard God is with you. Man, that's evangelism. As sure as I've unpacked this this morning, I know that there's somebody in here. I just trust it. If there's somebody in here that has a budding faith or a new faith or is looking for God, something is happening in them, and they're hearing these things about God, and they're saying, ooh, I want that God. We could spend all our time devising some sort of scheme to reach you, brother, or we can just expose our God to you, and you become undone like we are, like Rahab was. Man, what kind of God preserves through the watery ordeal? Ooh, that's the God I want. Man, that's the God I need. Man, if you have a budding faith and your heart is singing and soaring right now, keep singing and soaring because there's a lot more God left. Man, I want you all to see so far that our God baptizes His people and He delivers them from the watery ordeal. Now, we're going to shift gears and look at it from a different direction. Why does God wash? Notice I use a different word. Why does God wash, AKA baptize, his people? Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Let me prepare you for the next couple minutes. This is going to be a machine gun. But it's a machine gun for a reason. You're about to understand why if you stick with me. Exodus chapter 19. You'll understand what I mean when I say machine gun here in a second. Exodus chapter 19. This is the context. They've crossed on dry ground. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Egypt is, is floating on the banks. Dead bodies. They've gone through the desert for a little bit. God's led them to the wilderness of Sinai and the mountain of Sinai. That's where we pick up in chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses goes and speaks to those words. He came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Get ready, Israel, that preserved people. God's about to show up, so you need to wash your garments Because God is coming down to Mount Sinai. Turn to Exodus chapter 29. This is how the priests are to be consecrated. This would be Aaron and his sons. Beginning in verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them. That they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafer smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in a basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron, the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and and the breast piece. And gird them with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. See now why we have to be washed as a people? Does that connect with any dots of what Peter says that we are? That we are, in fact, a chosen race, a royal priesthood? See, the priests have to be washed. The priests have to be washed before they can come into the presence of the Lord. The whole nation had to be washed before God could even come down. Something inconsequential is just washing, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's as big a deal as this thing. It's much more than a short dip in a cool pool. It's much more than just a little wash. It matters to God. And God washes his people so they can interact with him. Pick up in verse 15. That's not all he does. He says, Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their, their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash the entrails, that's the guts, and wash the legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So not only do the priests have to be washed, but even the sacrifices that they offer have to be washed. These newly washed dudes are to wash whatever is offered up to God. Does that add a whole new meaning to Romans chapter 12? Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, place your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, a.k.a. washed. Does that add a whole new meaning? As priests and as sacrifices yourselves, we are to be Washed. Look at Exodus chapter 30. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, "You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing." Ah, it's not a big deal. It sounds like it is. You shall make a basin of bronze. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they don't drop stone cold dead. He's talking about washing your hands, man. Listen, don't read this as what mommy says to go do before you eat dinner. We're talking about washing up before you meet with God. He says, man, Aaron and the boys better wash up so they don't die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. He says it again. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Wash up, boys, or die. Look at Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter one verse nine. This is writing about the burnt offerings. The entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. Wash those entrails, wash those legs. Chapter thirteen, or excuse, chapter one verse thirteen. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it, a burn, and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. Chapter thirteen. Verse 6, and the priest shall examine him. This is a dude with leprosy. The priest shall examine this guy with leprosy on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. Mm, That doesn't sound good. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Wash the sacrifices. Wash the unclean. Look at verse 34. Verse 34. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the itch. Even if you just have an itch. And if the itch is not spread in the skin and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Chapter 14, verse 8. And he who is to be cleansed, the cleansing of a leper, shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent for seven days. Look at chapter 15. I'm not going to read all of 15, but I'm going to read enough where you need to get this. And let me tell you something. If right now you're thinking, I got it. This is so repetitive. Come on. we got to find out what happened before we hit the ground. There's 1,500 years worth of sacrificial system that the Jews would have engaged baptism in a very different way than a bunch of parachuters are. So just for a few minutes, we're going to try and be Jews and try and engage the monotony of this. Listen to chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for his discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one in his discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whoever sits on anything on which the one has the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes too and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who's unclean or who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. It goes on. That whole chapter is wash and bathe, wash and bathe, wash and bathe, wash and bathe, wash and bathe. And you're going, man, that's just, that's just enough. <laughs> what it makes me think about, when I think about all that washing and that bathing, my mind goes... When I was a kid, I worked for my dad, who's a veterinarian. <clears throat> and my dad would, as he saw a patient from one, a Twitter patient, from one room to the next, or he went to do surgery, he was washing his hands. He had an old TCU horn, horny frog or horn toad, I don't know what you call him, ring, that was just like polished. You couldn't even hardly read it because he's washing all the time. He's got an Aggie ring now that he's had less time than I have mine that I don't wear. And it's, you can hardly read it. Washing and bathing, washing and bathing. I'm just imagining the jewelry of these people. Just if they had any inscriptions on them, you can't even read them anymore because they're washing and bathing all the time. Somebody's unclean in any way. A gecko jumps on their back. Oh, I got to wash and clean. Wash and clean. A roach jumps in a boat. Wash and clean. Man, day and night, you hear the monotony of it? You need to hear the monotony of it. Here's the last verse. Chapter 17. Verse 15. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, and then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So, you want to know what John the Baptist was doing? We could call him John the washer. It's not as manly sounding as John the Baptist, but that's what he's doing. He's washing Israel because God is showing up. Wash them up, man. God is coming. If we're Parachuting into the Jordan. And we watch him as uninformed parachuters. We're going to miss it. But if we watch him now. As someone who's actually been in country. As a bunch of Jews. Who've been through the monotony. Who have jewelry that's all worn out. Because we've washed and bathed. And washed and bathed. And washed and bathed. I mean our skin looks like raisins. You know how it is when the kid's sitting in his tub too long. That's what we're like man. And then. We engage what John the Washer is doing, and then we can begin to understand understand it. He's washing a people and readying them for God to arrive. To get what he's doing, we could call him John the Washer. Now here's the beauty. If you stuck with me through that monotony, here's the beauty. I want you to turn to this passage, Hebrews chapter ten. This is as far as we're going this morning. But this is the most important, most essential worship thing of the whole sermon. If you invested in this sermon up to this point, especially the monotony of the washing and bathing, I want you to see the beauty of what unfolds here in chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. For since the law, here, sacrificial system, here, Washing and bathing, washing and bathing, washing and bathing. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, all this sacrifice, all this washing and bathing can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. You know, the reality is if this baptism was just like this baptism then we'd have to get Daniel back into the pool right after we dismiss. Because he probably sinned in the last few minutes. He probably sinned in some way. Mommy said, sit still, and he didn't. We'd have to live. There's not enough room for all of us in there. We'd have to live in the pool. Do you understand that? Do you get that monotony and realize that all that washing, all that sacrificing could not make perfect those who draw near? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any, sac- or have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder. The problem is parachuters don't get the reminder. There's a reminder of sin every year for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Our washing and bathing. It's impossible. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, well washed, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, all these things washed according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words, these sweet words. Once and for all. And every priest... He goes back to this monotonous image. Every priest stands daily at his service. He's all washed up, hands all wrinkled up, his, his, all his jewelry's just polished. You can't even read the inscriptions on his Aggie rings, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Jump down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, With our hearts sprinkled clean once and for all. From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water once and for all. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Ephesians chapter 4 says there's one body. It says there's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, there's one Lord, there's one faith. There's one baptism. One. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. No more washings. The baptism that the New Testament believer participates in, you're done that's it we don't have to do it again Daniel awesome man things are just so different now because of this finished work of Christ I'm going to finish with one passage that I just want you to listen to Romans chapter 6 do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death That's why we don't have to keep doing it. It's done. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here, crunch, crunch, crackle, crackle. Man, that's who we are. That's what this baptism thing is. It's so much more than a short dip in a cool pool. When we're baptized, we're baptized into that one finished work. And that work was achieved by Jesus Christ. Man, it's so much more than a parachuter might get. God baptizes, a.k.a. washes his people we're going to gather this up next week and we're consider, going to consider what is actually taking place when we're baptized next week. Let's pray. God, I pray that this thing that becomes so or may have become for many of us, I confess, has for me routine yet enjoyable. It just has so much more there. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we have the rest of our Bibles that show us who you are and what you do as you preserve your people through watery ordeal, as you take them across the other side and they walk on dry ground. Lord, as you wash away the filth of our own sin, the filth of a fallen world, I pray that that's something that we as a people can grab, that we can hearken back to our baptisms. And we can call people back to our baptisms and say, remember your baptism. That Just like I can remind or others can remind Daniel of who he's been baptized into and what actually took place, if that's something that hits us, that blows us away. I pray for that in me. I pray for that in this church that we can remind each other of that. That we can stir each other up by way of reminder And something that's so much bigger than a short dip in a cool pool. Lord, I pray that you will open up the rest of this next week. I pray that you will just unpack things for me this week so that we can enjoy what is actually being done. The promises that you are making us in baptism so that we have a much higher view of this thing. And it's something we can grab hold of. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Because when you come together, it's not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Let me just encourage you in something as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. If you are divided with a brother or sister, what you're about to take is not the Lord's Supper. It's a snack. And it can actually be sin. Man, we're supposed to have a sweet, reconciled relationship with each other. We're supposed to have short accounts with each other as we take this meal. That's what Paul is pointing them to right here. Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat if you're divided. So if you're crossways with a brother or sister, I would recommend one of two things. Either reconcile in these next couple minutes, if it's your wife or your husband... Lean over to him, whisper, and say, I'm sorry for being crossways with you. Please forgive me because I want to dine with you and I want to dine with God. That's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is pass on this supper, reconcile this week, and join us at the table next week. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare to pass this bread out, I want to encourage you to engage what we finished this sermon with today. To remember that this work that Christ accomplished is the final work. To be thankful that we don't have to do this mundane, tiresome bathing and washing and bathing and washing and sacrificing and bathing and washing and bathing and washing. That it's done. As you take this bread and this cup, remember and enjoy the fact that Christ is seated. Just envision Him seated. Let's worship. Appreciate y'all being here this morning. I'm, I'm going to dismiss y'all but I want to I um, was thinking as we we're sitting here about this picture of the of a lake in the evening time that's just glass but you, there's not even a ripple not even a slight wave to it it's just glass that's what that baptism pool is like right now that's what it's like right now Daniel doesn't need to get back in it and that's because of what Christ did The baptismal waters that I stepped in when I was a six-year-old, they're like that glass. It's done, finished, once and for all time. The appeal to God for a good conscience has been finalized. Man, enjoy the still glass of your baptismal waters if you've been baptized. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss this in prayer. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the finished work of Christ. Today, as we step out and go dine together or fellowship together, pray the image of really still waters, a real vacant tomb, and a very seated Lord are the images that fuel us. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks.